Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, July 3rd, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll never forget the first time I saw a minister drink beer. I don't remember the actual day, but I remember it was uh, in the beginning of my freshman year in college. I uh, was at the University of Hawaii just a few months before I had been to a summer camp that the United Methodist Church sponsored on the island of Molokai at the uh, Kalopapa, former leper colony. And uh, it was there that I felt called to ministry, and the pastor who was leading the camp was Alan Mark. Well, I had come from the Big Island. Now I was on Oahu for college. Uh, Pastor Allen knew that I didn't have any family here, so he and his family invited me to come out uh, to Waianae Church. Waianae is kind of way far away from the University of Hawaii. I caught a bus. It took me about an hour and a half to get out there. Uh, We had worship on Sunday morning. I hung out with their family during the day, and then that evening we had a picnic right on the beach. The church was literally right on the beach, and it was amazing, and I was standing there looking at the sunset and and, and feeling the cool breezes and listening to the sounds of the waves come up on the shore. And Alan opened a can of beer and started drinking. I was completely shocked. It, I didn't even know what to, to think about it. See, I, I had grown up not in the United Methodist Church. I had grown up in the American Baptist Church. I didn't know many pastors. Uh, now, if you don't know your Baptist flavors, uh, American Baptist is a little bit, well, a lot more progressive than Southern Baptist. But even still, it's still Baptist, right? So we didn't have any uh, drinking, especially among the pastors. And my world was officially rocked uh, that August of 1986. Little did I know that 30 years later, I would be preaching a sermon, Beer with Jesus. Did you see that in the bulletin today? And my district superintendent is here, right? Well... Welcome to the first week of a new series for summer called God and Country. I I preach a series a few times in Hawaii. July is always a week that only the faithful few come to church, right? Everyone else is on vacation. So I try to do something that's fun that'll get people excited and want to come to church. Um, we, We did this in Hawaii where there's not a big country music fan base in Hawaii. But now I'm on the mainland. And I know the Antelope Valley is way more country, not only than Hawaii, but than downtown L.A., right? Show of hands, how many country music fans do we have here? How many will listen to it if it's on? How many will walk out of the room if it's on? Okay, well, in the name of Jesus, I invite you to stay. Um, I started listening to country music about a decade ago, and I love it. I have lots of different genres that I listen to, but country is one of them. And some of you might be thinking, seriously, Pastor Jim, how in the world can country music be part of a Sunday service? Well... Over the next five Sundays, we're going to be picking a different country music song. We'll listen to it, and it'll be like the lead-in to the biblical passage that I'll be preaching on. You might think of it as finding God's fingerprints in country music. And we're going to start everything off today with Thomas Rhett's 2012 hit, Beer with Jesus. Let's listen. Due to copyright restrictions, we're unable to play the song for you here, but I hope you'll look it up on YouTube or on iTunes. So what would you do if you had the chance to sit down with Jesus and have a drink? Whether it was beer, wine, coffee, hot tea, Pepsi, Coke Slurpee, Tamarind Haritos, whatever your beverage of choice might be, right? 
more important question than what you might drink is, what would you talk about if you could spend some time with Jesus? That's one of the things I love about this Thomas Rhett song. It's not the, the idea that, oh, Jesus might have drank beer. Of course, we know Jesus had wine as a part of his daily life. He even turned water into wine. The power is what's said in the conversations you have with Jesus. Ask him, how do you turn the other cheek? To save a sorry soul like me, have you been there from the start? How do you change a sinner's heart? What, what would you ask Jesus if you had a chance to sit with him? Would you ask him about loved ones gone by? about certain times in your own life and some of the struggles that you've been through, or maybe some of those questions that everyone wants to know, like why does bad things happen to good people? Our scripture today is a somewhat familiar story to many of us, the story of Zacchaeus. It's also a story of a man who sat down and had a meal with Jesus. And yes, they probably drank wine together, but what's most powerful is what took place after that meal and after that meeting. But let's start back at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be beginning, beginning at the first two verses. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. All right, so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's almost Passover. He's moving towards what would be the eventually result in his crucifixion, his very last moments on earth with his disciples. He knows this. He may not know exactly how it's going to come down, but he's trying to give his disciples the last bits of truth and grounding that they'll need before Jesus goes off to be with God. The city of Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world. It's over 10,000 years old. It's also one of the lowest cities in the world at 1,300 feet below sea level. Now, to put this in perspective, Death Valley is 282 feet below sea level. This is 1,300 feet below. In biblical days, it was a place uh, where people stopped before making the final ascent uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was 2,400 feet above sea level. Right? So you got your 1,300 feet below, 2,400 feet. That 3,700 feet foot difference amounts to seven-tenths of a mile. If you visit today, you can take a gondola and ride up there. It's a little less uh, crazy than having to walk up there. Jericho was also a custom station, and thousands of Jews came through on their way to the temple at Jerusalem. Researchers tell us that two to three million people would come to Jerusalem during Passover back in Jesus' day. And those who were coming from the south would have to go through Jericho in order to get up to Jerusalem. As scholar Edward Markhart puts it, travelers would have to pay poll taxes on every cow, calf, and camel that came through customs. And that's where they would get them in Jericho. Well, the man in charge of collecting taxes in Jericho was Zacchaeus. Luke tells us he was a chief tax collector. Now, tax collection in biblical days was very different from tax collectors today. I know they're still not the most popular people in society. uh, But according to Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey, the system of taxation in Jesus' day was known as tax farming. So the Roman government would, would, would hire, would actually, local Jewish citizens would put bids out on the area that they lived. And there would be a set fee that the Roman government would agree. So if, you, if they had, say, the, the Palmdale-Lancaster area, 
and one person, Miss Sandra, was going to be the chief tax collector, she would pay the Roman government a set fee for this whole area. And then she would hire local tax collectors in each of the different areas, and they would go out and collect taxes from the individuals. Now, as long as Miss Sandra paid the Roman government what she promised to, everything else she collected was hers. The tax rules were so convoluted that really it was only the tax collectors that understood this. And human, kind of like today, right? Citizens don't really exactly know what we owe until we get the bill. Uh, but there was no way of fighting. You either paid it or you went to jail. And so as you can imagine, the system was set perfectly for greed and corruption. That's why tax collectors were, in general, very rich and very hated. Because it was their own people that were, was sticking it to them on behalf of the Roman government. They're not just hated, but they're despised, both in New Testament times and among the rabbis. Tax collectors and their families were considered unclean uh, by rabbinical leaders, and the rabbis even gave permission, are you ready, to break the Ten Commandments, one of them, when it came to tax collectors. They gave permission to lie to the tax collector, right? That's how ingrained this graft and corruption was that they knew that was the only way to try to not get fleeced. Well, the the deck is stacked against Zacchaeus when our story begins. He's the lowest person living in the lowest town on earth. You can't get any lower than Zacchaeus. Verse 3. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. Well, this is a sycamore tree. Uh, Platanus acadentalis. It produces figs. Sycamore trees have large leaves and low branches. They're perfect for climbing and hiding amongst their thickly clustered uh, broad leaves. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, uh, just like this one, which is kind of strange, actually. You don't see many grown men climbing trees. I loved climbing trees as a kid. I cannot tell you the last time it was that I climbed a tree. Especially in biblical times, grown men do not climb trees. One scholar even said, even in the privacy of their own yards, men did not climb trees. It would be the modern-day equivalent of a corporate executive chimmying up a telephone pole. It just isn't done, right? Why didn't wealthy and powerful Zacchaeus get his men, his people, to talk to Jesus' people, to set up a nice lunch at the Jericho Country Club? That would have been much easier, don't you think, right? Maybe for once, though, Zacchaeus didn't want to use his position and power to influence others. Maybe he was starting to think in new ways. Then again, Kenneth Bailey says, for whatever reason, sycamore trees were usually only grown outside the city limits. So maybe Zacchaeus chose a tree that was far enough away from the city that he figured the crowd would be dispersed by the time Jesus got there. We only know that when Jesus passed by, Zacchaeus was up in that sycamore tree wanting to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Now, obviously, Mary must not have taught Jesus. It's impolite to invite yourself over to someone else's house, right? I mean, that's what my mom taught me. You wait for your friends to invite you over. Hospitality in biblical times was radically important, but it was always the responsibility of the host to invite the guests over, not the other way around. So in this particular exchange, Jesus invites and Zacchaeus accepts, which caused quite a stir. Verse 7, 
all who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Now, it's not hard to imagine the bitterness that is expressed in this one verse. People literally hated Zacchaeus for what he did to them. One of his own people just robbing them blind. Kenneth Bailey says, a more acceptable speech by Jesus to Zacchaeus would have gone something like this. Zacchaeus, you collaborator, you're an oppressor of these good people. You have drained the economic lifeblood of your people and given it to the imperialists. You have betrayed your country and your God. This community's hatred of you is fully justified. So you must quit your job, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial ceremonial purification, return to Jericho, and apply yourself to keeping the law. If, If you are willing to do these things, then on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified house and offer my congratulations. Now that would have been a speech that the people applauded. But no, Jesus instead invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, and all he gets for his troubles is grumbling from the crowd. Now, it wasn't just the fact that Zacchaeus was hated by the people, but as a known sinner, his house was considered by the rabbis to be unclean and defiled. So if Jesus enters it, if he sits on Zacchaeus' chairs, maybe even sleeps over on one of the beds in Zacchaeus' house, the following morning, he would have emerged defiled and in need of cleansing. Not exactly how a Messiah on the eve of the religious festival of Passover should enter Jerusalem, is it? Nevertheless, Jesus goes and people talk. But you know what? Jesus seems to be more interested in the outcasts than the outraged. Let me say that again. Jesus is often more interested in the outcasts than the outraged. And here's the part of the story that I think connects with our country music song for the day. When Zacchaeus has his beer with Jesus, or whatever the beverage of choice was that night at his house, it changed his life. And I can hear Zacchaeus asking some of the same questions that Thomas Rhett says in his, in his uh, chorus. Tell me how you turn the other cheek and save a sorry soul like me. How, have you been there from the start? How do you change a sinner's heart? I mean, these lyrics could have been written by Zacchaeus, couldn't they? We don't know what was said that night over dinner either by Jesus or Zacchaeus. We only know that when all was said and done, Zacchaeus was a changed man, completely different. And I don't think he was just trying to show off for a special guest either. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Now, I'm guessing Zacchaeus didn't get many house guests. I mean, that weren't tax collectors, right? Not many people wanted to go and hang out with him. So when Jesus honors him by coming to his house, it was the equivalent of crossing the picket lines to intentionally spend time with one whom everyone else in the community had shunned. Love, grace, acceptance came to Zacchaeus' house that day, and he took it to heart. Jesus didn't make any demands before he left. Nevertheless, Zacchaeus unveils his new financial management plan right there on the spot. And part one, give half of his assets to the poor. Now, that in and of itself should be shocking enough. Half of what he owns, he's a very rich man, give to the poor. Can you imagine taking whatever funds you have in your checking and savings account, liquidating your stocks, your money market funds, your IRAs, your 401ks, uh, taking that wad of cash out from under your mattress, 
dividing it in half, and then just giving it to the poor of the streets of Palmdale and Lancaster. Can you imagine doing that today? Think about what that was for Zacchaeus to give that much away. And then came part two, theft remuneration. Leviticus 6 verse 5 states that if one stole from another, the original amount should be returned plus 20%. So you're giving back 120% of what you have stolen. Well, Zacchaeus more than triples that. He offers to pay back 400% of what he's cheated people of. And tax collectors are really good at cheating people, right? I mean, that's what they did. Like a, like a, 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 a what's the Geico commercial? That's just what they do. Because it was completely legal. If I have defrauded anyone, I will give back four times as much. Now, if Zacchaeus first gives 50% of what he owns to the poor, and then if the money that he has left, if he has unjustly collected just 13% of his remaining assets, he will not be able to fulfill his command to Jesus. He will run out of money before he pays everyone back. So make no mistake, this is a radical lifestyle change for Zacchaeus. Verse 9, then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. It's an amazing ending to this story. Today salvation has come to this house, says Jesus. Actually, all of it happened because Jesus came to his house and we know that Jesus is the way to salvation. Zacchaeus welcomed and accepted Jesus into his house. He welcomed and accepted Zacchaeus into his heart and into his life. And everything changed. That's what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. When we get introduced to the Savior of the world, we can't, be, we can't help but be changed. And it's interesting that Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. All Jews believed that they were sons and daughters of Abraham. It's how it was an expression that they used to describe themselves as a people, right? We're sons and daughters of Abraham. So in one way, Zacchaeus, Jesus says, is one of you. Don't forget this guy. I know you don't like him, but he also is a child of Abraham. But maybe Jesus was intimating something even more. Remember, Abraham was 75 years old when God called him and Sarah to leave everything they had and to start this new adventure. And God said, and you're on a need-to-know basis. And it took him 25 years to know exactly what that bigger plan was for his life. Could it be that maybe Jesus is letting Zacchaeus know that he too is about to embark on some crazy adventure? And instead of leaving everything behind, he's giving it all away as he begins to follow the Savior of the world. By the way, you want to guess what the name Zacchaeus actually means? The Hebrew word, its origins mean clean, pure, and innocent. Yeah, talk about ironic, right? I bet you can count on zero fingers how many times anybody said Zacchaeus was Mr. Clean, Pure, and Innocent. And yet, nevertheless... He, he has this life change. In fact, he was probably as unclean, pure, and innocent as anyone you can imagine. In fact, one of the commentators said, it's kind of like, think about the least likely person to have their lives changed by Jesus. Think of the people you know, or the people you hear about on, on television or on the internet, you read in the papers. Who are the people or the person that is leak, least likely to follow Jesus? And maybe this story is inviting us to think God might even have something in their lives as well. And when you have that beer with Jesus, 
When you have that moment of embracing the Savior, everything can change. But we know people, right? We, we are great judges of people's character, and we know who people really are and whether they can or can't change, right? Or we think we do. And yet, how too often we try to hold people captive to their past mistakes. Maybe not to their faces, but in our hearts, we know what, what people have done. We know what we've done. We judge others and we judge ourselves. Sometimes we're worse on ourselves than others. Could it be that this amazing story from Luke 19, God is using it to challenge us to let go of those preconceived prejudices about people around the world, about the friends that have hurt us, about who we are and what we could possibly be? Because really, this isn't a story about a sleazy tax collector from 2,000 years ago. This is a story about you and me. When you and I are at our worst, when we do or say or think things that are about as far removed from what God would want us to do or say or think, even then, Jesus comes to our house and he bathes us in grace. I love how the the great African-American theologian Howard Thurman once said, this word from Jesus sets a crown over Zacchaeus that he will spend the rest of his life gladly growing tall enough to wear. Isn't that great? One of my favorite authors is Frederick Buechner. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister. And in his book, Peculiar Treasures, it's a biblical who's who of 125 uh, characters from Scripture. And he goes from A to Z. So, of course, he ends it all with Zacchaeus. He describes Zacchaeus like this. He's a sawed-off little social disaster with a big bank account and a crooked job, but Jesus welcomes him aboard anyway. And that's why he reminds you of all the others in this book, too. And then he quickly recounts some of the other people, the characters that he had written about in his, in his book, like Aaron and Jacob and Yael and Rahab and Nebuchadnezzar and Saul and David and Peter and Judas. And then he says, like Zacchaeus... They're all of them peculiar as hell, to put it quite literally. And you can't help feeling that, like Zacchaeus, they're all of them somehow treasured too. Why are they treasured? Who knows? But maybe you can say at least this about it. That they're treasured less for who they are and for what the world has made them than for what they have it in them at their best to be. Because ultimately, of course, it's not the world that made them at all. All the earth is mine, said Yahweh, and all that dwells within, adds the 24th Psalm. And in the long run, presumably, that goes for you and me too. So there we have it. The story of Zacchaeus is the story of all of us. Each one of us is a peculiar treasure in the eyes of Jesus. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done or have left undone. For God sees us with the eyes of grace love and new beginnings, and may we spend the rest of our lives gladly growing tall enough to wear that crown that Christ Jesus puts on us, not because we earn it or deserve it, but because of his amazing grace. Thanks be to God for the story of Zacchaeus and the chance we have to live up to it. Amen. Amen.